Greetings. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the nation. The phone number is 877-973-7425. Now I've got to go into the show notes email uh, that we send out at noon. And I got to get the the story that I was going to start the show with. And then everybody wanted me to explain recessions, inflation, and all of that stuff. Uh, but Derek Thompson has a piece called The End of the Millennial Lifestyle Subsidy. And it is probably the biggest piece of the day. So if you get the show notes email, subscribers, you get all the links to all the stuff that I talk about in the show. And this is the thing I intended to start the show with until the last minute made an editorial change. And it's a very important story. On your costs as a young person, are about to skyrocket. And really, your costs for everyone who uses a lot of digital services are about skyrocketing. And I will just explain this to you, put it in my own words from, from Derek's piece, but he, he points out something that I think you kind of intuitively understand. You know all those companies out there, DoorDash, Instant Cart, Uber Eats, Grubhub, Uber, Lyft, all those digital services, do you know they don't make money? They don't make money. They don't turn a profit. They're growth businesses. Or Amazon. For the longest time, Amazon Amazon didn't make a profit. Amazon does now. For the longest time, it didn't. Amazon actually made a lot of money, but then poured its money back into growing its business. And the data, the metric that was important for the venture capitalists and Wall Street was growth. So it did not matter that Uber or Lyft or DoorDash didn't make money. What mattered is they got the more and more customers. And so though they were losing money on their deliveries through the economies of scale, they could get closer and closer to breaking even because when you're taking the $20 pizza that someone bought and you're delivering it for 10 bucks and you're losing some money there when it really should cause you 50 costs you 15 bucks to deliver it, but you're delivering now thousands of customers instead of tens of customers, it's okay. You're getting a lot of money coming in. And you could take all that money, and even though it's technically you're losing it, because interest rates are so low, they can take out loans, and they can offset the costs, and they can pay back the loans, and they can keep the cycle going and grow and invest and grow and invest and, and plow back in the money to the company and grow and grow and grow. And so subscriber rates were what was important. Netflix, the reason Netflix stock has tanked so badly in the last few months is their subscriber growth rate has plunged. As long as Netflix was growing, it didn't matter that Netflix didn't have a profit because Netflix was growing subscribers. As long as Uber was growing subscribers, no one cared that Uber wasn't making money. But now, but now, it matters. It matters greatly. Interest rates are going up so much that they can't keep taking out cheap loans. You've been subsidized by those low loans. Let me read you part of this from Derek's piece at The Atlantic. 
Several weeks ago, I needed to ride home after some late-night drinks about two miles from my place in Washington, D.C. I pulled up the Uber app and entered my address. When the price on the screen popped up, I assumed I'd enter the wrong street, maybe the wrong state. I retyped it, but the same price appeared. $50. It's outrageous, I thought. $50 for a 10-minute ride? Then I kept thinking, aren't gas prices and inflation near half-century highs? Isn't the labor market so tight that low-paid workers are switching jobs at historic rates? Is it nominal wage growth rising fastest for the kind of worker most likely to drive for Uber? Yes, yes, yes. But something beyond rising energy and labor costs led to that startling price tag. With markets falling and interest rates rising, startups and money-losing tech companies are changing the way they do business. In a recent letter to employees, Uber's CEO said the firm needs to make sure our unit economics work before we go big. That's chief executive speak for, we gave Derek a nice discount for a while, but the party's over. Now it's costing him $50 to get home. For the past decade, people like me, young, urban, and professional, got a sweetheart deal from Uber and all of its clones and the whole mosaic of urban amenities and travel, delivery, food, and retail that vaguely pretend to be tech companies. Almost every time you or I ordered a pizza or hailed a taxi, the company beyond the app, behind the app lost money. In effect, those startups, backed by venture capital, were paying you and me to buy their products. It was as if Silicon Valley had made a secret pact to subsidize the lifestyles of urban millennials. As I pointed out three years ago, if you woke up on a Casper mattress, worked out on a Peloton, Ubered to a WeWork, ordered on DoorDash for lunch, took a lift home, and ordered dinner through Postmates only to realize your partner had already started on a Blue Apron meal, your household had in one day interacted with eight companies that lose money. They collectively lost $15 billion in one year. These startups weren't nonprofits, charities, or state-run socialist enterprises. Eventually, they had to do a capitalism and turn a profit. But for years, it made a strange kind of sense for them to not be profitable. With interest rates near zero, many investors were eager to put their money into long-term bets. If they could get in on the ground floor of the next Amazon, it would be the one in a million bet that covered every other loss. So they encouraged startups to expand aggressively, even if it meant losing a ton of money on new customers to grow their potential total user base. Consider the simplified example. Let's say the ingredient labor and transportation costs on a pizza delivery in New York City averaged 20 bucks. If a company charges $25 for the average New York City delivery, it makes a profit. But if a startup charges $10 for the same thing, it's going to lose money but get a lot more pizza orders. More pizza orders means more total customers, which means more overall revenue. The arrangement is tailor-made for a low-rate environment in which investors are attracted to long-term growth more than short-term profit. As long as money was cheap and Silicon Valley told itself the next world-conquering consumer tech firm was one funding round away, the best way for a startup to make money from venture capitalists was to lose money but acquire a gazillion customers. I call this the millennial consumer subsidy. Now the subsidy is ending. 
Rising interest rates turned off the spigot from money-losing startups, which, combined with energy inflation and rising wages for low-income workers, has forced Uber, Lyft, and all the rest to make their services more expensive. Meanwhile, global supply chains haven't been able to keep up with domestic consumer demand, which means delivery times for major items like furniture and kitchen equipment have bloomed from three to five days to sometimes between this fall and the heat death of the universe. This means higher prices, higher margins, fewer discounts, longer waits. For micro-generations of yuppies used to low prices and instant deliveries, the golden age of bougie on-demand urban tech discounting has come to a close. The heavily discounted prices of the 2010s aren't coming back. The millennial consumer subsidy is over. For the foreseeable future, metro residents are going to have to go back to living the old-fashioned way by paying what things actually cost. It's a brilliant read. I encourage you to text show to 33777. Click that bottom link. Read it for yourself. It's in the daily show notes. It's really important to understand what's been going on. I've got a friend of mine. I I need to take him fishing, or he needs to take me fishing, actually. But he's the one in a dour straits right now. He works for a company that is a tech company that is dependent on venture capital money. And the VCs are telling all their their fintech companies and the like, buckle up, tighten up, start layoffs, get prepared for layoffs. You need to you gotta be profitable now. The good times are over. And he given his position is in the very stressful position of having to run the numbers and figure out the books without cooking them to tighten up the ship, shore up the money, and stop the drain from going away. As I mentioned earlier, for a very long time now, for the last 10 years or so, people have been making so much money on Wall Street that they've been able to take very low-interest loans and make more money on Wall Street than they were paying in interest And so they could sell stock, their stock value would still go up, they'd still make money, and then they'd pay off the loans. Because the interest rates were 1, 2, 3%. Now they're 5, 6, 7, 8, 9%. You can't make 5, 6, 7, 8, 9% in a bear market. You're losing money on the stock market. The good times are over. But also, on a side note, You know, for the last number of years, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, they've been talking about uh, taxing people's wealth, the unrealized capital gains. Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, but he's only rich on paper. If he sold all of his stock, the stock price would go down in Tesla. He wouldn't be nearly as rich as paper says he is. They wanted to tax what his paper worth was, not what his real worth was. People like Elon Musk, you know how they live so that they don't have to pay income taxes? They take out loans. They take out millions and millions of dollars in loans, and they live off the loans. And then they pay back the interest on the loans because the interest has been very low. And their stock was going up so much they could sell their stock and pay off the interest, or they had enough income, they were being paid income from Tesla or whatnot, their income equaled the value of the interest on the loans, and they're paying back the interest and maybe not the loans, and they're taking out more loans, and they're living a lavish lifestyle, and then they don't have to pay income tax offsetting the loans that they got. 
And if they paid off the stock to pay back the loans, they could take write-offs on the, on the loans the way the loans were structured and they had no income tax liability. All of that's coming to an end now. All of that lifestyle is coming to an end. If anything, we're reverting back to the way the world is supposed to work. We're reverting back to the good old-fashioned economic times where value stocks value more than growth stocks. What's a value stock? Well, a value stock is a stock that maybe pays you a dividend, but it's a product you use. You go to McDonald's a lot, it's a value stock for you. You buy razor blades, you buy paper products, you buy paper towels, you buy toilet paper. Those are value stocks. They're not sexy products. They don't grow. They're not going to earn you a massive pile, but they're going to be stable. You're not going to stop buying toilet paper tomorrow because prices are going up. You're not going back to corn cobs and Sears and Roebuck catalogs. Hell, they don't even make the Sears and Roebuck catalog anymore. No more big book for you to wipe your booty with. You got to go buy toilet paper. You may buy one ply, but you're going to buy a ply of toilet paper. You're going to buy a razor blade. Your kids are still going to want McDonald's on occasion. But you may Uber less. You may not put your money in the Robin Hood account. The sexy stocks are over. The value stocks remain. The Warren Buffett way of, of buying, buy the things you use, it's coming back into fashion now. The glory days of the millennial consumer subsidy are over. The world returns to normal, but with it, interest rates go up. The economy slows down, all to defeat inflation. And the Democrats, well, they're in charge everywhere, so they're the ones who get the blame. There are a lot of options out there. If you're a self-starter and you want to invest on your own, it can be really confusing. And I'm delighted to tell you about SoFi because that's who I use. And now I've got them as an advertiser. If you're a SoFi user, uh, my gosh, you get all sorts of options. Great research. You get the ability to invest in stocks, EFTs, crypto, plan out your retirement. Uh, more importantly, you got people you can call on. I mean, for example, um, I can use SoFi to buy stocks and EFTs and do the deep dive research if I need to and get complimentary financial planners ready to help answer questions. Uh, you can too, whether you're stuck on where to start or need help deciding what to do next. You can even save for retirement with traditional Roth and SEP IRAs. They have so many options. If you're into crypto, you can also explore crypto. They've got 30 available coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, Solana, Dogecoin, and so much more. But more importantly, they've got the number one ranked automated investment tool, their robo-advisor. It takes the stress out of building and managing a diversified portfolio without having to pay a bunch of experts to do it. I really like SoFi. Y'all, I've tried, you name it, and I probably tried it, and I settled on SoFi and think you will like it as well. Cut through the jargon, make investing easier with SoFi. Visit SoFi.com slash Eric to learn how you can win up to $1,000 in stock when you open an account. That's SOFI.com slash Eric. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC. Member Fin Recipic. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-973-7425. I think I'll venture to take a phone call. Tyler, you're going to be up next. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. How you doing, Eric? Good. Good. Uh, been a long time uh, listener and first time calling, but I wanted to share with you, I'm a recovered homeless veteran. Um, I was able to get back on track. I'm sober. Uh, I ended up leaving a great job uh, just because of the stress of the job. 
looking for a new job currently, but I'm doing the gig economy, and the reason that I'm calling is I've been doing an, an experiment with DoorDash and been uh, currently experiencing earning less than about $7 an hour. That's taking out expenses for gas and a car. So um, I think that we've just become lazy as Americans, and uh, unfortunately, you're right, the free money has let us down a rabbit hole that I think we're going to have an impending doom with uh, with the economy, unfortunately. Um, and. That's what all I've got to comment today. Yeah, listen, uh, first of all, God bless you for your service and, and getting yourself back on your feet and, and your own hard work in doing so, where undoubtedly there are lots of Democrats who want to take credit for doing it, I'm sure. Um, you know, the reality is we've had a really easy, good time in this country for a while now. And, you know, again, I, I just I look, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't play one on radio. I don't want to be your financial advisor, but I know a lot of them. And all of them say if, if you're at or near retirement, you should be really investing in bonds that generate a, a reasonable, stable yield as opposed to the stocks. We're in a bear market. Stock portfolio is declining. We don't know how long it's going to be. If this is like the 60s and 70s, you know, the stock market went down significantly over that time and inflation continued to rage. I I just don't um I I'm I, I would be careful put keeping all your money in the stock market if you're at or past retirement age. If you're where I am, mid 40s or younger, yeah, leave most of your portfolio there. If you're real young, yeah, the stock market over time will rebound. But a lot of people are used to making a lot of money. I've, I've got friends of mine who have been day traders who've made a lot of money day trading. And when the good times were roaring, you could. Uh, look at Bitcoin right now. Look at crypto. I know a number of people who have been wiped out in the crypto markets in the last few weeks. And a lot of people kept trying to justify it and say it would be a hedge to inflation and the like. Um, and no, nope, crypto is not a hedge for inflation at all. Gold and silver, you're better off with gold and silver than you are crypto far more stable, easily, uh, more readily able to to deal with it across borders. It's not good. It's a problem. It's something you're going to have to worry about. The times they are changing. So so what do, you, what, what do you do in these times? And again, I'm not a financial advisor, but I'm going to, I will tell you just reasonably prudential knowledge acquired over years is this go with the fundamentals of what works and what works is not using the stock market as a casino what works is if you're young invest in in mutual funds that have good track record invest in stocks of companies that give you value that you use. Don't invest money in companies you don't use. Like I, I honestly, I've I've been asked to invest in uh, bourbon barrels. I'm like I, I you know, just as a, if I got some spare money, I might because it's not like I I I don't consume the product. Might as well. Uh, I would I would never do it for for some of these other wild investments out there. But by and large, I mean, you buy the stocks of the companies that uh, return dividends, grow your money over time, reinvest your dividends, you grow your portfolio. As you get towards retirement, you start pivoting towards stable bonds. 
uh, and and you you got to plan out your retirement. You can't look to the stock market like it's the lottery or a casino. You never have been able to. But for the last 10, 15 years, the stock market has been roaring away and people have been able to do that and get away with it. And it's not going to last. It looks like it may be coming to an end. And you want to be prudent with your money. And all this wealth gap stuff that the left is screaming about, we may see that all correct itself here very shortly. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number is... What is the phone? 877-973-7425 if you want to be on the program. Um, There is a violence happening around the country that's not getting a lot of media attention. I want to tie a couple of stories together. You know, I'm I'm not on camera today. I'm in studio. At some point, I got to figure out a setup of how do I record myself in studio uh, in video so Philip can take some of these things and run with them. Uh, I would call this segment "Oh Church Arise." You know, the the Southern Baptists are meeting out in California, and uh, Vaudi Balkum. I'm a big fan of his, and he did not win a race. He was running for uh, pastor conference chair, and and he lost to a guy who's very conservative young conservative pastor in North Carolina, but uh, some of the, the the folks out there are like, oh, we must, we're going woke. If we didn't go for this guy, he's the he's the guy against wokeness. We must be going, no, you, you just, you went for, you did not choose the guy who's not a Baptist minister. You chose the guy who's a Baptist pastor. You, get over yourselves. Uh, I, I got some concerns within the SBC and, and even my own denomination, the PCA, over some, some folks who are agitating and in, I think ways that aren't good, but I don't think the denominations are going woke. But people are are worked up about this stuff these days. There's actually a political movement within the Southern Baptist Convention of people tied to President Trump who are trying to convince uh, the messengers of the Southern Baptist Convention, if you don't go their way, you're selling out to wokeness. But it's a political agenda. I mean, you got one of the ministers who wants to be the chairman of the, or the president of the Southern Baptist Convention going on political talk shows, conservative political talk shows, to try to make his case. That tells me everything you need to know. The church got some issues. Now, there's a uh, the, these stories. This is from Sarah Westwood of the Washington Examiner. Violence and threats against the anti-abortion movement have increased in recent weeks as the Supreme Court prepares to issue opinions in a landmark abortion case. An alleged assassin targeting conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh generated headlines this week after police say they arrested an armed man near Kavanaugh's home. But attacks against crisis pregnancy centers, some of them faith-based, have risen steadily since the leak of a draft opinion in the case Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health, which suggested the court is considering overturning the legal precedent that prevents states from banning abortion. A Washington Examiner review identified recent incidents of arson, vandalism, or both at at least 13 anti-abortion centers across the country. Police are investigating an alleged arson at a crisis pregnancy center in Buffalo, New York, on Tuesday after a fire destroyed much of the Christian pregnancy center and injured two of the firemen. Investigations are underway at several other pregnancy centers hit by Molotov cocktails in the months since the Dobbs opinion leaked, including in Kaiser, Oregon and Madison, Wisconsin. Few arrests, if any, have been made. An extreme pro-abortion group named known as Jane's Revenge, has seemingly claimed credit for a number of the incidents. 
In Washington, a crisis pregnancy center near the U.S. Capitol was hit with vandalism, including red paint splashed on its door, resembling blood, and a spray-painted message saying, Jane says revenge. In Linwood, Washington, threatening spray-painted messages at Next Step Pregnancy Center included abortion isn't safe, neither are you, and Jane's revenge. An Asheville, North Carolina pregnancy center was defaced with a similar message, if abortions aren't safe, neither are you. The same message was spray-painted on a pregnancy center in Reistertown, Maryland. The Biden administration prepared a memo last month that said the Department of Homeland Security is bracing for unrest, but did not specify one side as being more likely to engage in violence. Now, there's another story also from the Examiner. This is from Tim Carney. The title is Civilizational Sadness, Climate Guilt and the Baby Bust are rooted in a belief we just aren't good. The origin of our abuses is us, wrote population control advocate Tracy Stone Manning, who heads President Biden's Bureau of Land Management. If there were fewer of us, we would have less impact. We must consume less, and more importantly, we must breed fewer consuming humans. Having a child is the grandest act of climate destruction, blared a headline in The Spectator. We're getting handed a piece of blankety-blank planet, Miley Cyrus said in 2015, and I refuse to hand that down to my child until I feel like my kid would live on an earth with fish in the water. I'm not bringing another person onto the planet to deal with that. This has been a constant drumbeat of the cultural left for the better part of the last decade, so I was surprised by the lead of a recent New York Times column by Bay Area-based liberal millennial columnist Ezra Klein. Or I was unsurprised by the lead. Over the past few years, I've been asked one question more than any other. It comes up in speeches, at dinners, and conversations. It's the most popular query when I open my podcast to suggestions time and again. It comes in two forms. The first, should I have kids given the climate crisis they will face? And the second, should I have kids knowing they will contribute to the climate crisis the world faces? Now, I I just got to tell you, in my world, nobody asks this question outside of the left-wing fringe. But in Ezra Klein's world, in San Francisco, it comes up all the time, inside his tribe, inside his bubble. Now, this is back to Tim Carney. Many of my conservative friends have scoffed at this or at least noted that Klein seems to run in odd crowds. To be sure, it's a minority who let climate change affect their family formation patterns, but that minority might include most young liberals. A third of childless Gen Zers, a third of childless Democrats, and a third of childless adults in the West in 2020 said climate change was the reason. If you combine these categories, you'd probably find that an easy majority of childless Democratic Zoomers in California cite climate change as a reason not to have kids. So nope, climate doom causing doubts about marriage and parenthood isn't something made up by journalists. The next question is whether it's an honest explanation or a handy excuse. A lot of people see that rising children, raising children is extremely difficult, that it gets in the way of doing what you want to do for your career, for fun, with extra time, for sex and your hobbies. 
but want some higher sounding justification. Surely that 25% of childless young people giving climate as a reason, including some true believers and just some searching for an excuse. But I think Ezra's colleague, Ross Douthat, that it's, it's best to take climate-based child hesitancy seriously, if not literally. It's completely inadequate to say millennials and Zoomers are too selfish to have kids. Zoomers are Generation Z, the kids who have grown up on the Zoom chats for school. It's clearly inadequate to say millennials and Zoomers are too selfish to have kids because selfishness, like gravity, is a constant. You can blame gravity for plane crashes, but that doesn't tell you much. So it's worth setting aside the selfish charge for a moment and asking, what is it about this young generation that makes them less likely than Gen X or even baby boomers to want kids? And why do they mention climate when they talk about not wanting kids? Douthat says it's a lack of religion. A secular materialist worldview makes it harder to make the case for having and raising children in the face of suffering. We can get more precise, though, and Ezra Klein gets us to the heart of it. He quotes one expert saying, the people who are least responsible for climate change are the most affected by it. It's simply morally wrong. Klein sees here that those who, like Miley Cyrus, say they won't have kids because those kids would inherit a burning, unlivable planet are really telling a cover story. The fear about the future of our children will face when voiced by well-off residents of wealthy countries sometimes strikes me as a transference of guilt into terror. To face what we've done to others is unimaginable. It's easier somehow to imagine we've done it to ourselves. Yes, it's about guilt. Douthat agrees, writing the idea of white and Western guilt are particularly important to contemporary progressivism. And in certain visions of ecological economy, removing one's potential kids from the carbon-emitting equation amounts to a kind of eco-reparation. It's ironic that our society has untethered itself from Christianity and, as a result, become paralyzed by guilt. But that irony can wait. The guilt here is telling because it's not just guilt about carbon footprints or rising sea level. It's a broader guilt conquering secular America. It's total guilt. It's a belief that we just aren't good as a people. It's civilizational sadness. Now I'm going to stop there. Let's just talk for a minute. Oh, church, arise. There's a story I saw today of a house that's available on Airbnb and one of its selling points is it has erected in the front yard on the on the wall a granite monument identifying that the land was taken from an indigenous Indian tribe in Washington state. So you can be mindful when you go on Airbnb and pay for the house that you're renting to take your family vacation, that once an American Indian tribe took that land and the white man took it from him. You know what? Good. Good. I see no reason to apologize to a bunch of uncivilized, savage people who were killing each other and scalping each other that uh, white people who didn't scalp each other took their land from them and used it for a higher and better use, planting farms, building houses, taking it to advance Western civilization, which is a higher, better lifestyle than what was there in, in the land of the Indians. 
I, I see no shame in that. No, it's not racist. Left-wingers will say it's racism. No. Have you seen the churches of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment in Europe compared to what did the Native Americans build? Teepees and Indian mounds. No, I see no reason to apologize for uh, a, a more advanced people coming in and taking the land and bringing it to a higher, better use. Western civilization is awesome. There is nothing to apologize for Western civilization. And yet progressive Americans have embraced as part of their secular religion guilt. You must feel guilty about everything. You must feel guilty that at one point some Indian tribe you've never heard of and cannot spell or pronounce lived on the land you're now living on. How dare you build a skyscraper, put people to work, and create billions of dollars of money in an economy where the descendants of that no-name Indian tribe can be millionaires and billionaires? There's no guilt in it, and yet there is if you're on the left. There's guilt about everything. There's guilt about everything. Every aspect of your life you have to feel guilt about. In Christianity— you repent and you are forgiven. You put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are forgiven. The Western world, as it has abandoned Christianity, has been reconsumed by the pagan guilt that was there before the Christians took over. All of Rome was consumed with the guilt in the empire. They would engage in sacrifice, child sacrifice, and sacrifices to the gods to get over their guilt, to make it rain because they did a bad thing. Along came the Christians and said, you don't have to kill your kids and put them on the altar of the Moloch. You believe in Christ, trust the Lord, and he'll take care of you in the good times and the bad. We got rid of that, and now we're back to we got to sacrifice something. Our pride, our land, the conservatives, the abortion clinics, the pro-life sinners, we, we, we got to sacrifice the kids. I mean, Western secular society has gone back to Moloch and child sacrifice. These people, they're either not having kids or having abortions to Moloch to save the planet. You know, 5,000 years ago, the pagans sacrificed their children to Moloch to have a good harvest. Now they're just crossing their legs or having an abortion and not having kids. For Moloch, for the harvest. When you get rid of God, religion doesn't go away. The old things just creep back in, and that's what's happening in this country. And with it is guilt. And churches across this country sending their kids out to Mexico and Central America to hammer nails and uh, spread the gospel and have a mission trip might be better off going into American cities and resharing the gospel with a group of white progressive urban college degree dwellers who have forgotten that all they have to do is put their trust in Christ and have no more guilt because he frees them. Where there is God, there is liberty. And these people are being bound up in their guilt. Church arise. It's amazing how old things are new again. It's like these progressive organizations I talked to you about earlier, just racked with guilt for the sins of others and unable and unwilling to forgive. They can't forgive because they don't know forgiveness and they're racked with guilt. The church in America could fill the void here, but the church in America is too busy fighting amongst itself over whether or not they need to be more Mary or more Martha. They all agree on doctrine by and large, but they're too busy purging the heretics among when the heretics are just, oh, let's think about this differently. Let's not think about this differently in orthodoxy. Let's just think about it differently missionally. And they're fighting each other. The church in America is dropping the ball at the time it's needed the most.
the conservative movement is out there with, with the churches working in, in to some degree, and Patriot Mobile is helping fund the cause. You should consider Patriot Mobile. If you want to compound your dollars to help the conservative movement in America, Patriot Mobile would be a good fit for you. Go to PatriotMobile.com slash Eric today. You can get free activation by using my name, PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. They take a portion of their profits and contribute it to the conservative cause that you love. And in so doing, they advance the conservative mission from the pro-life cause to the Second Amendment cause to veterans, first responders, conservative candidates. That's what they do. And they're 100% U.S.-based. So their customer service, if you call them at 972-PATRIOT and use my name for free activation, you're talking to someone in the USA. PatriotMobile.com slash Eric or PatriotMobile.com slash E-R-I-C-K. Same thing. You can see their coverage maps. You can port your existing phone number over to them. They're, they're a cool cell phone company. They work. They got great service. You got the same towers everybody else uses, so it's not like you're on inferior stuff. It's the same stuff you use with all the other carriers, but you're working with a Christian conservative company. 972-PATRIOT or PatriotMobile.com slash Eric. Hi there, it's Eric Erickson here. I'm going to round up the show with Ed calling about the red flag law. Ed, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Eric. Hope you are. I am. Yeah, uh, I was just listening to the red flag law, et cetera. And in 1979, I, I had two people come into my home and we got into a fight uh, because I didn't want them there. And one pulled a knife out on me and tried to stab me. Uh, I ended up shooting him and, and killing him. Um, at the time, we didn't have a stand your ground law, and I really didn't have very good legal rep- representation, uh, and they convinced me to plead guilty to manslaughter. I, uh, to this day, wished I hadn't have pled guilty, but, but I did. So my question to you is, I live way in the woods, and, and my wife has a concealed carry permit. Uh, is, am I, is she allowed to carry her gun with me in the car? Is she allowed to have her gun uh, in the home while I'm there? You know, uh, sh- under, under existing law, yes. Uh, but at the same time, you know, um, y- y- you put red flag laws into place and people find out about this and they want to cause harassment for you and your family. It, it becomes easier for them to do it. Um, it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing. And, and Ed, I, I gotta tell you, uh, hearing your story there. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's one of those things where it's almost like, can, can, can we figure out a way to get a pardon, uh, now? Well, there's no way to do that. I've tried to do that. I was, I lived in the state of Pennsylvania at the time, the parole board, I was sentenced two years, uh, in prison and they let me out early because uh-huh. they realized I was actually in jail for a crime. that was no longer a crime. Goodness. Um, well, and I did have a situation in my lifetime where there was a uh, it was a domestic thing where a woman uh, Ed, I, had look, me arrested. I, I, I'm I'm afraid I got to stop you there because I only got about 15 seconds here. But I, I first thank you for sharing your story. I uh, really appreciate it. And, and second, uh, look, your your wife is fine with with the guns, but yeah, I mean, again, red flag laws can be used to harass people like y'all, and that's not right. <laughs> 